From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. An agreement is reached to end the two-year brutal conflict in Ethiopia that has claimed up to a half million lives. That is a sterling example of what we need to see going forward with regard to other crises on the continent. And as for the 30th time the United Nations votes to condemn the U.S. blockade of Cuba, protesters rally outside the White House to urge Joe Biden to end strangulation of our island neighbor. We call Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism. But over the past 20 years, did the Cuban government drop over 337,000 bombs on Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Pakistan, Somalia, and Palestine? Up, up, up with the people. Down, down, down with the blockade. All that and much more on today's show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for November 4th, 2022. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, as the Supreme Court heard arguments on Monday in two cases seeking to challenge affirmative action for college admissions, a broad coalition of student, youth, and human rights organizations rallied outside the court in support of the practice of considering race and acknowledging racism in society as one of many factors to evaluate a student for admission to public and private colleges. The Reverend Starsky Wilson, president of the Children's Defense Fund, told those rallying outside the court that for two generations, affirmative action has created greater opportunity in this country. For two generations, we have kept the doors open for America's children and young people to have every opportunity available to them by making sure that admissions policies did not try to slam the door of opportunity in their faces. We know that because college education increases civic engagement, we know that civic engagement keeps the voices of black and brown communities and those with lived experiences of poverty and trial active in democracy. We know that shutting the doors to college is shutting the doors to democracy. Shutting the doors to college is shutting the doors to civic engagement. Shutting the doors right now on this generation shuts the door on the most diverse cadre of children and youth that America has ever seen, and we know that there are people who have a vested interest in shutting the door. So we have come to stand before this door on this day while teenagers are completing their college application to say we need to keep the doors open. Even before the five hours of argument were concluded in the two cases, Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina, most corporate media outlets reported that the court's far-right supermajority seemed poised to overturn previous rulings that upheld affirmative action to ensure a diverse representative student body. More on affirmative action later in the show. In the run-up to the November 8 election, 
Voting rights advocates continue to report a variety of actions to intimidate or discourage citizens from casting a vote, including armed people showing up at ballot drop boxes in Arizona, a new law in Georgia that is particularly targeting or challenging registered black voters, and so-called poll watchers in North Carolina demanding to watch people vote or intimidating election workers. Lindsay Schubiner, program director at the Western State Center, which advocates for voting rights, wrote in Common Dreams that in order to fight back against such voter suppression, every registered voter should have a plan to vote. Quote, whether the ballot is cast in person early on Election Day in person by mail or by absentee ballot, figure out ahead of time which option works best and plan to get the transportation and time off needed to vote for democracy itself and against those who prefer bigotry to inclusion, authoritarianism to full representation. Next, help friends, family and neighbors to do the same. End quote. These threats are happening at the same time that Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, suffered a fractured skull in an attack at the couple's San Francisco home by a man who said he was there to do physical harm to the House Speaker. Such political violence and the threat of violence and intimidation at the ballot box were some of the themes touched on by President Biden in a speech delivered Wednesday night. All of us who reject political violence and voter intimidation and I believe that's the overwhelming majority of the American people. All of us must unite to make it absolutely clear that violence and intimidation have no place in America. There is something to be said about the virulence of far-right politics that even Biden advocating for the peaceful right to vote did not draw bipartisan support. Nearly two years after Donald Trump refused to accept that he lost the 2020 election, and summoned a mob to Washington, D.C. to attack the U.S. Capitol, nearly 300 candidates who denied or questioned the 2020 election results are running for office, including for offices with jurisdiction over voting. Still, to those of us on the left, Biden's speech about violence sounded at least ironic as his administration spearheads the brutal proxy war against Russia in Ukraine a costly foreign policy that economist Jeffrey Sachs said this week is undermining prospects for congressional Democrats during this election. Speaking of Ukraine, Pentagon officials told Politico that it plans to speed up delivery of the latest nuclear bombs to NATO bases in Europe by the end of this year but claims that this escalatory move is not related to the proxy war with Russia. In other brighter international news, Ethiopia's government said Wednesday that it had signed a peace deal with the Tigray TPLF fighters who launched a civil war against the government two years ago. Hermela Aragawi, a journalist and co-founder of the No More movement, told Breakthrough News that the Tigray leaders may have saved themselves and scores of others in reaching the agreement. The Ethiopian government has essentially won this war militarily, and the negotiations in South Africa was terms of how to finalize it, which is how they were able to get the TPLF leadership to sign something this big. The agreement reinforces that Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government, is the only one national defense force and says that both sides have agreed on a detailed program of disarmament demobilization, and reintegration for the TPLF combatants, taking into account the security situation on the ground. 
In this hemisphere, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, known best as Lula, won his bid to be elected as Brazil's president. For the 30th time, countries at the United Nations voted overwhelmingly to end the U.S. illegal blockade of Cuba. After headlines will air voices from a rally held in front of the White House to support Cuba and end the illegal blockade. And more than 90 organizations signed a letter this week urging President Biden to, quote, reject the imposition of an international military intervention in Haiti, which will merely perpetuate and strengthen the anti-democratic system that is responsible for today's conditions, end quote. And we'll have more on international news later in the show. In economic news, 10 congressional Democrats and independent Senator Bernie Sanders sent a letter this week to Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell asking him to estimate how many millions of U.S. workers will be out of a job next year due to the central bank's continued raising of interest rates. Led by Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Representative Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, the lawmakers point specifically to Powell's admission that the rate hikes, while touted to curb inflation or higher prices, will actually spur job losses and a possible recession. While Powell announced Wednesday another hike in interest rates, Paul Donovan, chief economist at the global investment bank UBS, criticized Powell in the Financial Times. He wrote that inflation in the United States is, quote, more of a product of profits than wages, end quote. Joining the chorus of progressive advocates and economists, he added, quote, companies have taken advantage of circumstances to expand profit margins. The broadening of inflation beyond commodity prices is more profit margin expansion than wage cost pressures, end quote. Meanwhile, as fuel costs and the dependence on fossil fuels rises because of U.S. and EU sanctions on Russian energy, the U.N. Climate Summit, or COP27, gets underway in Egypt on November 6th. In Black Lives Matter news, the Grassroots Law Project reports that in 2022, police in the United States are killing more people than ever. They counted on November 29th that 945 people had been killed by police this year, and there were only 10 days this year where police did not murder someone. They added that, quote, yet billions of dollars every year are being poured into local, state and federal police budgets. In some cities, policing is more than one third of the entire budget, end quote. While these murders disproportionately of black and brown men continue, the trope about black people as criminals or about blacks in crime, first promoted by right wing organizer Steve Bannon, is being repeated like a mantra in right and far right circles ahead of the November 8th election. The Black is Black Coalition will host the Black March on the White House this Saturday, November 5th, 1130 a.m., beginning at Malcolm X Park in Northwest D.C. More information is at blackisbackcoalition.org. And finally, in culture and media, The Intercept reports that the Department of Homeland Security is, quote, broadening its efforts to curb speech it considers dangerous through an expansive effort by the agency to influence tech platforms, end quote. The article said that while the agency's so-called disinformation governance board was widely ridiculed and then shut down earlier this year, 
Other initiatives are, quote, underway as DHS pivots to monitoring social media now that its original mandate, the war on terror, has been wound down, end quote. Former CIA head Mike Pompeo has been served with a lawsuit brought by a group of American lawyers and journalists who alleged that the CIA, while Pompeo was director of the agency, spied on them during meetings with WikiLeaks founder and whistleblower Julian Assange while he was granted political asylum inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London. On Wednesday, WikiLeaks shared video of Pompeo receiving the legal documents with the caption, You've been served. Here in D.C. this week, a literary series offered a perspective from those on the receiving end of U.S. foreign policy. Chantel James has more. On Tuesday, the Center for Arab Studies at Georgetown University collaborated with the Arab World Studies program at American University to bring Palestinian writer and spoken word poet Radir Malik for a talk and reading titled I Exist. Malik's work is on belonging, occupation, displacement, and living in diaspora, and the conversation ranged into Palestinian resistance and identity. She reads her poem, Thawra Tawaldi, here. I know the anger and resentment from generations of oppression and humiliation, and the messed up web of violence that is left behind after colonial injustice has overtaken. And when justice is muffled and refrained, then everything loses life, even for the perpetrators, because Seoul is where people rejoice after surviving massacres on besieged pieces of land so many times without accountability or reparations. I know you, settler colonialism. I know you intimately. You are the weak and insecure. You're the silence of impunity. You are the pain that blisters at my fingertips. You are the knot in my tongue. You are the bullet hole in the middle of my forehead. You are the burning billowing out of my lungs. You are a world without my own, without a name or nation. I am not of your creation. I am, I am the one who runs through my fields and dances in my heels. I am the one who breaks at my hips to greet the faces of my seeds. I am the one who feels the beating of the land in my limbs. I am the dome of Jerusalem promising dreams for generations. Later, the voices of student poets joined. The event is the continuation in a series from the center. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally, Jerome Pelequin, D.C.-based activist who worked for years to prevent the destruction of McMillan Park, D.C.'s first integrated park, has died at the age of 81. He was known to his friends as Jerry and had a varied career, which included being a founder and drummer of the rock group Jefferson Airplane and a founder of the Family Fish Farm Network, an organization dedicated to exploring sustainable ways for humans to produce food and preserve clean water on a resource-depleted planet. Here, survived by his son, Ted. Services will be announced on his Facebook page. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
And today we're here as the United Nations votes for the 30th time consecutively to outvote Washington, the State Department, the United States in demanding that it cease a Cold War relic, the United States blockade on the people of Cuba. Right now, as we speak, dozens of countries around the world are gathered in New York at the UN demanding that Joe Biden be a good neighbor, follow what the Democratic platform, the Democratic Party platform had promised to revert the 243 plus sanctions on Cuba that were implemented by the far right Trump administration to take Cuba off of the state sponsors of terror list because in reality it is not Cuba that is exporting terrorism. Cuba is exporting health care, it's exporting doctors, it's exporting vaccines and they shouldn't be punished for it. Um, we have a broad coalition of progressive anti-war voices, people from this country, people from Latin America, who are all dedicated in sending a message to Joe Biden that enough is enough, that we need to ensure that we treat Cuba like a good neighbor and we let Cuba live. 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 I want to welcome up to the microphone my friend, Maya McCall, uh, also with the Anti Coalition. So give a warm welcome to Maya. In 1960, the CIA and the U.S. government hatched a plan called Operation Mongoose to bomb Miami, in addition to murdering boatloads of Cuban exiles fleeing to the U.S. and blame it on the Castro government as pretext for the invasion of Cuba. Why? What could possibly motivate a country to go to such perverted lengths to find a pretext to invade another country and overthrow its democratically elected government? Cuba's original sin was that they put an end to the foreign looting of their country, redistributed the wealth hoarded by a tiny fraction of the population, and changed the very nature of their society from one that was dominated by the rich and turned it into a society that served humanity. And every day, millions of Cubans suffer from the U.S. blockade that has been in place with the explicit purpose of weakening the economic life of Cuba in order to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of government. Every year, $5 billion is lost from the Cuban economy by draconian measures of this just of genocidal blockade. 
money that could be used for energy, for medicine, for hospitals, food, housing, infrastructure. While the blockade has cost Cuba money and revenue, the subversive activities that the U.S. funds cost the U.S. taxpayers $20 million a year. And despite the U.S. blockade, Cuba not only continues to survive, it thrives. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, they developed five vaccines. They're easy to store, making them ideal for developing countries that lack the capacity to produce and refrigerate at the temperatures required by Moderna and Pfizer. It was the first country on Earth to eliminate the transmission of HIV and syphilis from mother to child. It was the first country on Earth to pioneer a vaccine against meningitis B, and it has the highest doctor-to-patient ratio in the world. And despite campaigning on reversing these detrimental, indefensible, genocidal policies, and against the consensus of the entire international community, Biden added even more sanctions. Even the New York Times recently characterized Biden's foreign policy as a harder line than Donald Trump's, doubling down on Cuba's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism. It is as absurd to call Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism as it is to call the U.S. a harbinger of peace and democracy. There is nowhere in the world that has become freer because of U.S. intervention and meddling. They call the country who has sent over 450,000 doctors to over 164 countries in the last six decades to provide crucial support and exporter of terrorism. In 2010, these brigades were the first to be dispatched and provide aid to Haiti, a response that saved thousands of lives in contrast to the American Red Cross, which hasn't even dispersed the over $500 million raised for the relief effort. And yet, they call Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism. But over the past 20 years, did the Cuban government drop over 337,000 bombs on Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Pakistan, Somalia, and Palestine. They call Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism. But did the Cuban government impose vicious sanctions on Afghanistan that has since January of 2022 resulted in the deaths of over 20,000 infants due to starvation? They call Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism. But since World War II, has the Cuban government invaded, destabilized, and pillaged over 193 countries, bombing weddings, funerals, kindergartens, hospitals, and facilitating international human sex trafficking? Or is that the U.S.? Should we allow a government that would bomb its own city or murder innocent civilians the moral authority to determine who is a sponsor of terrorism? If the intent of the blockade was to push millions of people to the point of starvation and desperation to facilitate the overthrow of the Cuban government, the blockade has failed. It has been 60 years of unnecessary torture. It is time for Biden to follow through on the promises that got him elected and take the boot off of Cuba's neck. Give a hand to Maya. Let Cuba live. 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 I see we have friends here today. It's it's expected. Um, we're all here very peacefully. We're going to keep our program keep going. Let Cuba live. Let Cuba live. Let Cuba live. We're going to. I'll lead a, a couple other chants. 
Um, and then we'll welcome Carlos McKnight of the Claudia Jones School for Political Education. Cuba no esta sola. Cuba no esta sola. Cuba no esta sola. Cuba no esta sola. All right, good afternoon, comrades. I can't hear you. Good afternoon, comrades. First, before I start, I want to acknowledge the land that we are on. We are on unceded indigenous land stolen from the Piscataway tribe here in what we call Washington, D.C. today. This land has been worked by folks who are my ancestors, people who were sold in this park right behind you. We acknowledge that this land is unceded and that this belongs to the rightful owners, the indigenous people of Little Turtle Island. Today we come to join the many countries across the world that call for the end of the embargo on Cuba. We come today to tell President Joe Biden to end putting Cuba on the terrorist list. For over 60 years, the United States and her allies have tried to kill, have tried to cease the revolution. But today, the revolution is strong. When Kennedy tried the Bay of Pigs, Cuba stood strong. When the United States had a propaganda campaign continuing to today, Cuba stands strong. With numerous economic embargoes on the nation of Cuba, Cuba stands strong. We here in America will not be fooled by the bourgeois politics of the United States. We will not be fooled because I know as well as all of us know that what's happening in Cuba happened here in America happened in Mexico, happened in Africa, happened all across the world. Because Cuba is a prime example of what we can have for the working people of the world. So we stand here today to continue to stand and fight with the people of Cuba, to continue to fight for the revolution, and to continue to say no to the blockade and to take Cuba off of the terrorist list. We are strong when we are here and standing together. Nothing can divide us. We stand strong against fascism. We stand strong against neoliberalism. We stand strong against colonization. We stand strong against imperialism. And we're going to continue standing strong with our compañeros in Cuba. Thank you. Viva la revolution. Viva Cuba. Those were voices from the rally held in front of the White House Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022, as the United Nations voted for the 30th time for the U.S. to end the 60-year-old illegal economic blockade of Cuba. The demands were that President Biden join the rest of the world and put an end to the genocidal blockade take Cuba off the U.S. list of state sponsors of terrorism and lift all travel and economic restrictions on Cuba. Some of the extra background noise was from anti-Cuban government trolls who attempted to disrupt the action 
But activists from groups including the Answer Coalition, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, Code Pink, and the Claudia Jones School for Political Education carried on with the protest. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, say them clear for the whole round world to hear. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish you could know what it means. To be me, then you'd see and agree that every man should be free. This is On the Ground Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for a deeper dive into international and some domestic news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African American studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than 40 books, including most recently, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and The Roots of American Fascism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, you know, the news cycle is fast and furious and many days also frightening. But I think that we can start with, with what looks like good news anyway, though I had to look outside the U.S. corporate media to find information about it. on Wednesday. Agence France Press uh, reported a peace agreement between the Ethiopian government and TPLF terrorists, uh, which we know launched a civil war against the government precisely two years ago on November 4th, 2020. And since then, some estimates are that up to a half a million people have been killed and regions of the country are facing famine. So we mentioned this briefly in our uh, conversation last week. These talks were held in South Africa. But what are your thoughts now that this agreement has been announced? Well, cautiously optimistic. We know that there is a long history of peace agreements supposedly brokered, for example, in neighboring South Sudan, that quickly fall apart. Uh, Having said that, I think that I should cite some of the experts and specialists on this part of Africa who characterize what has transpired in Pretoria, South Africa, as a kind of capitulation by the Tigrayans. And they wonder if the Tigrayans will be able to sell this agreement to their populaces, which have been hammered relentlessly by the Addis Ababa offensive. Also, a note of caution is that Eritrea, was not at the table, although Mm -hmm. it's felt to be a major player in this conflict. Likewise, there is an underlying conflict in that part of Africa between the Amhara ethnic group and the Tigrayans, and presumably the former were there under the umbrella of the Addis delegation, but it's unclear if their representatives and delegates will be gung-ho about this agreement. And then there are other outside forces beyond the Eritreans. I'm thinking of the Egyptians, for example, 
who it's well known would like to keep the pot boiling in Ethiopia, not least because they feel that the Grand Renaissance Dam that Ethiopia is the process of completing is a mortal threat to the lifeblood of Egypt, speaking of the Nile River. And then there's the United States of America, which has been quite interested in what's going on in the Horn of Africa of late. And I think it has something to do in part with the ever more complex relations with Saudi Arabia across the Red Sea. We all know about the conflict between the Saudis and the United States because the Biden regime felt that the Saudis pulled a fast one with regard to production of oil. And there has been a lot of loose talk, (laughs) believe it or not, about regime change uh, in Riyadh. Mm. And that is one of the reasons why I think that there has been more interest by the U.S. authorities in Somalia of of late, which, of course, is a neighbor of Ethiopia, uh, just across uh, the Red Sea as well, uh, from Saudi Arabia. And as well, with regard to Ethiopia itself, uh, even if this agreement looks as promising for Addis as it appears to be, there are lingering questions in that country, the second most populous in Africa beyond, behind Nigeria. I'm speaking of the conflict internally with the Oromo, the conflict internally with uh, Ethiopians of Somali descent. So I don't think it's time as of today to uncork the champagne bottles, although we can be cautiously optimistic. Right. So one question about the Eritrean uh, involvement. I mean, they came into the conflict at the invitation of the Ethiopian government, just like the Russians came into Syria at the invitation of the Assad government. So if the government in Addis is in agreement with the settlement, don't you think that Eritrea would you know, be in align with it also? I hope so. Oh, okay. <laughs> As you know, uh, there were pre-existing conflicts between Eritrea and the central government in Addis, the apparent settlement of which led to Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed getting a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. I, I hope so. But um, I cannot say 100% that I'm certain. Right. I mean, I guess, especially since Eritrea shares that border, one border of their country is is abutting the Tigray region, right? So, yeah. And then, of course, there is this complex relationship, as you know, between the Tigrayans and the Eritreans, uh, linguistically, ethnically, etc., Uh, They were comrades of a sort uh, some years ago when they were both uh, struggling against the central government in Addis, but then things began to fall apart during the latter stages of the time when the Tigrayan, the TPLF, was ruling in Addis. And so I assume that there are unresolved grievances that could keep the pot boiling. Right. I was kind of discouraged to hear that the U.S. was actually involved in the talks. It's it's almost like they had kind of muscled their way in. And so because players with better track records of integrity were involved, perhaps they can they can overcome the any efforts that were made with with less than good intentions. (laughs) Well, I I should have said in in a more positive light that this was an exemplar 
of African solutions for African problems. Right. Africans sitting down at the table in South Africa with the former president of Kenya, Mr. Kenyatta, as a mediator, the former president of Nigeria, Mr. Obasanjo, as a mediator. Uh, that is a sterling example of what we need to see going forward with regard to other crises on the continent. Well, speaking of crises, it looks like one is still averted here in this hemisphere. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, our friends at Black Alliance for Peace were, you know, kind of claiming a victory, really, because they had managed through their organizing and with other organizations to, by sending a letter to the U.S. Security Council, got Russia and China to delay a vote on the prospect of sending some type of outside force into Haiti to supposedly quell the disturbance there that they say is from gangs. Other people say it's from an organized resistance there to the ongoing repression and the Western puppet government. But I haven't really heard a lot about that, about Haiti since that delayed vote. And I'm wondering if you have an update. Well, yes, hats off to Black Alliance for Peace. Hopefully this relationship that apparently exists with the Russian and Chinese delegations at the United Nations headquarters will continue. If so, that augurs profound significance for the future. I'm not as optimistic about Haiti today as I am about Haiti's neighbors. Speaking of Colombia and Venezuela, there was an amazing summit that took place in Caracas, Venezuela, just this past week between President Petro of Colombia and his Venezuelan counterpart. They spoke in glowing terms about being one people, that is to say the Colombian and Venezuelan people. Mm -hmm. This was a turnabout from the time under previous President Duque when Colombia was a kind of spearhead against Venezuela directed by Washington. Uh, This augurs quite well for the future as well as the election in Brazil with Lula coming back to power. What's interesting there is that even though there appeared to be a concerted program of destabilization by the truckers, speaking of independently owned truckers from a class position, basically speaking of elites and middle class truckers, this was reminiscent of the days before the coup in Chile in 1973, when also you had truckers in the streets blockading traffic. But apparently that's dissipating. Apparently, I think what may have helped to sway the forces of outgoing President Bolsonaro to pull back their horns, so to say, is the congratulations that Lula da Silva, the victor, received not only from China, but also from the United States of America. And so let's hope that that is a positive sign uh, going forward. And certainly what's happening in Latin America now is breathtaking in terms of the left-leaning governments from uh, Mexico in the north through Venezuela and Colombia uh, to Brazil and Argentina. Uh, This is some of the most important news of our day. Right. And, you know, you mentioning the 
you know, this really important news and the, the wins by the left in Central and South America, it just reminds me to mention the criticisms that the Black Alliance for Peace, for example, have, has raised about the role of Lula in the past and also the Mexican government in, in Haiti and how they have not shown the same kind of solidarity it would seem that they show toward each other in terms of, you know, fellow Brazil's not Spanish speaking, but, you know, in terms of other governments in Central and South America or the Caribbean, they're not showing that same type of solidarity with in terms of Haiti because of their past uh, agreement for inter- interventions in Haiti and and not really standing in solidarity with the Haitian people. Well, as you know, Lula won this election by a narrow margin, 51 to 49. Uh, as well, the government of AMLO in Mexico City uh, has a very uh, powerful and potent right wing backed by U.S. imperialism to contend with. So uh, that is not by way of excuse, but by way of explanation for some of the policies that are emerging from those two Latin American giants that not only Black Alliance for Peace have objected to, but people internally in those particular countries have objected to as well. Right. So I think that we have to go next to the conflict in Ukraine. I was really alarmed and, you know, perhaps I I haven't been paying attention to this aspect of the nuclear threat. I've been following the comments made by people in U- in the UK, Liz Truss, you know, saying that she would be willing to press the button. This is this is when she was, I think, running to be uh, prime minister, perhaps trying to impress her <laughs> would-be voters, and uh, certainly Anthony Blinken making certain comments uh, earlier this year. And then when uh, 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 Vladimir Putin, uh, president of Russia, responded in his now infamous speech saying that, you know, hey, um, uh, um, we have weapons also, and uh, citing the 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 precedent that the U.S. had already set with uh, bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, anyway, I've been watching, you know, watching and listening to this, this slowly, watching this uh, climb up the escalation ladder, and so I. But I was actually shocked that there was a news report that came out about a week ago, and I guess only discussed in by a few uh, left news outlets this week that the U.S. had moved up its timetable to place nuclear weapons, upgraded nuclear weapons at NATO bases in Europe. And so um, they, as part of this leaked report, they say, oh, this has nothing to do with the war in Ukraine, but that sounds totally disingenuous. So I wanted to get your thoughts about that and just in general, the latest in this es- this dangerous escalation in the nuclear threats being just thrown around so so loosely. Well, I think the nuclear threats bespeak the deterioration of the Ukrainian performance on the battlefield, something that you would not learn from reading the mainstream U.S. press, particularly the New York Times and the Washington Post. I should also say that with regard to nuclear weapons, there's been talk about uh, storing such in Finland. I think we mentioned that last week on this program. Mm -hmm. And that would be quite dangerous uh, given Finland's proximity uh, to Russian territory. But on the other hand, there are developments that are taking place in that theater 
that your audience should pay careful attention to. As we speak, Chancellor Schultz of Germany is winging his way to China with a huge delegation of German elites. That bespeaks the fact that this U.S. strategy document, which painted Russia and China as a two-headed evil monster that Washington has to slay, that that's not necessarily accepted by all of the North Atlantic so-called allies. Uh, This visit by Chancellor Schultz reflects a deepening rift in the North Atlantic Alliance. Apparently, Germany is not willing to go over the cliff, at least not go over the cliff to the extent that Washington wants it to. And that is something that we're going to have to pay careful attention to. Likewise, this past week, you had an important delegation of the Vietnamese leadership that was in China. China rolled out the red carpet for the leader of the Vietnamese Communist Party who visited Beijing. Uh, This is important because despite both nations being ruled by communist parties, they have had severe conflicts uh, over the years, including uh, China actually invading Vietnamese territory uh, a few decades ago after the United States was ousted unceremoniously uh, from Vietnam in 1975. That was all part of this uh, China alliance uh, with the United States and was seen as a way to weaken not only Vietnam, but Vietnam's major patron at that time, speaking of the Soviet Union. And you know that in recent months that Washington has spoken of Vietnam as a potential site for a U.S. military base. Well, Mm. I guess that's off the table. And that also speaks to this push towards peace, which we imagine and trust will thwart this push towards war as reflected in this loose talk about nuclear weapons being placed in Finland, for example. Right. And I guess since you were just talking about China, the latest report is that these types of weapons could be placed in Australia or, you know, nuclear capable uh, military equipment placed in Australia. But that, and that seems to definitely target China, uh, if that's the case. Well, yeah, <laughs> you are certainly correct. So finally, I wanted us to switch domestically and turn to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know that earlier this week on Monday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in two affirmative action cases, one involving the University of North Carolina and the other involving Harvard University. And what I heard of the arguments uh, in terms of the statements made by uh, Justice Jackson is that she recused herself from the Harvard case because of her relationship to Harvard. But in terms of the UNC case, she weighed in saying, questioning the the lawyers uh, for the I guess the the plaintiff saying that, well, you know, what if you had two prospective students, one whose ancestors who have been here since before the Civil War, and they want to carry on the legacy to attend your school because it's important to their family legacy. The other student, their ancestors were here before the Civil War, but they were enslaved. And so it's important to them to attend the school to to honor their ancestors' legacy. And so 
I really got the idea that this argument about affirmative action is singling out race as one of the many uh, factors that universities consider for admission to, for admitting students while leaving in place all these other uh, categories, including legacy in- admissions. So it just shed a whole new light on the whole argument for me. Well, it seems as if the conservative majority of the U.S. Supreme Court is held bent on wrecking affirmative action, despite the implication which you outline, which is that it would leave in place uh, other kinds of so-called preferences, that is to say affirmative action for those whose parents attended to Harvard, for example, the student who applies whose parents attended Harvard or whose grandparents attended Harvard, or the kind of affirmative action that allows Harvard to want to have geographic diversity by having students from North Dakota and Hawaii, or the kind of affirmative action that allows for Harvard to make sure that their swimming coach and their golf coach has something to do by making sure that uh, students who have talent in that field, in those fields, are admitted or oboe players. I mean, the list is endless. And yet you can take all of those factors into account, but not a legacy of racism. And so what it would amount to is magnifying the racism that already exists in the system. And that's something that uh, Judge Kanjanji Brown-Jackson was trying to elicit uh, in her questioning. Uh, She also has made a point, uh, which is worth considering, that the Supreme Court makes a big to-do about being so-called originalist. That is to say, you have to interpret the Constitution the way that it would have been interpreted in the late 18th century by the men who drafted that document. Well, what about the Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th in particular, and 15th Amendments, which were clearly race conscious, were clearly drafted by radical Republicans, as they were called then, And somehow the originalist argument does not necessarily seem to extend to all parts of the Constitution, only to the parts of the Constitution that deliver conservative outcomes, which is one of the many reasons why this U.S. Supreme Court is losing legitimacy, losing popularity, seen increasingly as politicians in black robes. And then you had this exchange between the Solicitor General of the United States, who argues the U.S. position uh, to the high court, and I believe it was Chief Justice Roberts who expressed some concern that if affirmative action were wrecked, it would affect admission to West Point in the U.S. military academies. And what would that do for diversifying the officer corps, which he seemed to be concerned about for some reason, he seemed to imply that there might be a carve out for affirmative action for the military academies. Now, how that'll be justified while wrecking affirmative action elsewhere, uh, it baffles and befuddles me. And then finally, uh, there might be a kind of compromise whereby affirmative action at Harvard will be allowed to proceed to a degree since it's a private institution And the way the law is interpreted, the public institutions like the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill have more restrictions with regard to the Constitution. But if you were a betting person, you probably bet 
on the Supreme Court junking the entire affirmative action project, which in a manner of speaking means that a resurgence of racism would be in store. Well, I know that we will definitely have time to get back to this subject and return to it again and again, because there's so much to say about it, especially when I hear uh, people who are not people of color talk about uh, affirmative action in such a dismissive way. I heard one person talk about how it's not helping the people it was intended to help, but they are taking the right to themselves to define that. So if, you know, as you know, my people are from the United States, but if I see people from Africa or from the Caribbean being able to take advantage of, of affirmative action, I don't, I don't feel some kind of way about that. I don't, I don't feel like, okay, this shouldn't help them. Or I don't feel like if the person is a middle-class black person, it shouldn't help them because they weren't always middle-class and their parents and their family wasn't always middle-class necessarily. Right. So, you know, I just hear a lot of people expressing these opinions about affirmative action. First of all, when, when they're not the ones really impacted by it and really, really jumping the shark when it comes to kind of the analysis of race and racism to make all these other types of analysis that have nothing to do with how people who are black experience racism in this country, really. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So anyway, thank you for joining me. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, and that includes domestic issues too, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material, or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Ivarum. I, be like Victor, E-R-E-M. Special thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel To Be Free by Nina Simone. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>